you would think that right, putting, you know, being like, this is an existential threat, right? Things could get really bad if we don't um, do anything about it would be extremely motivating. And so then the, but the question is, well, why hasn't it been motivating? And one of the reasons is we know from some of the fear appeal literature is that when people don't really have a great way of um, solving the problem, the only thing really to do in that situation is to kind of ignore it. We see this sometimes with like medical uh, situations, right? People might like, you know, they have something and they don't want to go to the doctor because they're like worried about it and they don't know if, you know, if they'll be able to, mm. to do anything about it. But the same thing happens here, especially, you know, through, you know, say the 80s and the 90s, the 2000s, there wasn't a lot that, you know, people necessarily felt maybe they could do. And and so we know with like with that fear appeal, people kind of just kind of tried to ignore it. So today I'm joined by Dr. Jeff Rotman. Uh, Dr. Jeff is a senior lecturer in the Department of Marketing and co-director of the Better Consumption Lab at Deakin Business School. He is the recipient of the 2021 Vice Chancellor's Early Career Research Award for Career Excellence. He specializes in research on consumer psychology with a specific focus on the areas of ethics, emotions, and sustainability. Thank you uh, very much, Jeff, for joining me. Thank you for having me. Okay, well, I mean, to begin, uh, so perhaps it'd be good to lay out some context for the purpose of uh, of having conversation with you. So you recently wrote a really interesting article on climate change and how we perceive the risk of climate change. And I think uh, you start the article very interestingly where you talk about how, you know, based on the most recent IPCC reports, there's a rapid, rapid and closing window in which action uh, uh, is essentially needed to 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 uh, mitigate climate change in a material way. Um, and at the same time, you also mention how, you know, paradoxically, we've known about climate change for a few decades now. And so we're in this position where we know it's happening. We know we need to act now. But it's not something that's novel. It's something we've known for a long time. So, and it seems as though your view, as someone that specialises and as an expert in you know psychology, um, that psychology plays a very big part as the reason as to why we have not acted. Uh, so, I'd love to know, you know, what is your view, and am, am I assessing your view correctly on a large on a whole? And you know, what is your view? Yeah. So. Climate change, along with a bunch of other problems, you know, are what you know, the literature considers wicked problems, which means they're just very challenging problems. They are at the crux of a bunch of different you know, cognitive biases, human biases um, that we have to overcome that makes action for them very challenging. Um, I could probably spend the whole hour kind of going through you know, all of them, but at a... You know, some level at one level right is you know, one of the things that i talk about in that article that i think is interesting is you would think that right putting you know being like this is an existential threat right things could get really bad if we don't um, do anything about it would be extremely motivating and so then the, but the question is well why hasn't it been motivating and one of the reasons is we know from some of the fear appeal literature is that when people don't really have a great way of um, solving the problem, right? It's very, right. Threat in itself is obviously threatening, but when you can't solve the problem, um, 
you know, the only thing really to do in that situation is to kind of ignore it. Um, we see this sometimes with like medical uh, situations, right? People might like, you know, they have something and they don't want to go to the doctor because they're like worried about it and they don't know if, you know, if they'll be able to, mm. to do anything about it. But the same thing happens here, especially, you know, through, you know, say the 80s and the 90s, the 2000s, there wasn't a lot that, you know, people necessarily felt maybe they could do. And, and so we know with like, with that fear appeal, people kind of just kind of tried to ignore it, right? Because dealing with it was threatening, especially because if they were going to do something, you know, well, A, right, they might not have been able to do anything. Or if they would, it would be, you know, huge long-term, you know, or short-term costs um, for, you know, maybe some short-term gain or long-term gains. But even that was, you know, a little bit nonsensical. Um, and I think, you know, one of the, the bright sides to this is we've seen, you know, huge investments in, in a lot of technology over the last little while. And so now there's been, you know, we've seen this huge kind of uptake and, you know, even belief in climate change has gone way up and among even the most skeptical demographics. And part of that is that now there are things we can do, right? There's, you know, investments into, you know, solar panels and PVs, batteries, um, et cetera. So, so there is a bit of a bright side, but it is, you know, part of what, sort of spurred that article was the question, you know, did it have to get this bad um, before we start to act? And it's not necessarily that it's just, you know, that close and that bad, but it's the combination of it's, you know, it's getting bad and it's getting worse. Um, and that, you know, we now have things for it. The other I guess, piece of it, of the fear pill is, you know, the question of, you know, in branched enough, a bit of the temporal discounting, right? We're not great at dealing with like long-term costs. And so, you know, saying to someone, Hey, you know, there's, there's this problem. And if we don't address it, it's going to cause problems in 30, 50, hundred years, uh, isn't, you know, super motivating for people. Uh, but what we've seen, you know, or at least we've, you know, we've attributed to, you know, these increases in you know, extreme weather, right? Whether we're talking about fires or hurricanes or, you know, heat waves, right? And be like, Oh, yeah, it's here. And so that's this concrete, right? We think about this, we'll think about it cognitively, concrete versus more abstract. And concrete things really get us to motivate, really motivate us a lot more than, you know, these abstract ideas. Um, yeah. Just, like mm. I said, there's lots more to say on this, but I'll, I'll. Yeah, no, of course. No, I think it's a, a so I, to summarize, let me know if I've, uh, if I've understood you correctly. So it seems to be two really big problems. So the first thing is that when it comes to dealing with fear, I mean, at the end of the day, we're a social species, we're, an, we're, we're animals. And so if there isn't a tangible way to resolve something that is of significant challenge to us or is uh, scary, yeah. for lack of a better word, uh, an effective strategy is to ignore it or to suppress it or to push it away or perhaps mm -hmm. even to convince yourself that it's not there. Uh, and then the second thing is with regards to long-term problems, the long-term is abstract. It's not here. It is not in the now. Like uh, we've evolved at such that the, the tiger that's right in front of us is, should be the thing we prioritize and not the, the herd that is perhaps coming in the next 10 years or something like that. Right. Would you say those are the yeah. two, a, a, a fair summarization of the two things? Things? two big pieces, but I would even say the temporal aspect has, is sort of two problems in one, which is one, the temporal aspect. So even if you have concrete, I think, so there's been research you know, on temporal discounting where it's something like, hey, um, mm. I will give you, you know, you can have $10 today or in a month, I'll give you $20. Yeah. People will take the $10 today, mm. um, right? 
even though you know 100 your return in a month is great um you should take that but people will take that and there's a few reasons for that part of it is yeah just you know we value short like mm. the now a lot more the other piece um so right all of these have so many interconnecting pieces um is also just trust and i think mm. something you know we haven't talked a bit about but it's hugely important it's just you know how we think about this information and the trust and one of the you know really interesting although problematic things about uh, this this whole debate is something that you know, i think right, there used to be the famous line right 98 percent of you know scientists or climate scientists agree so and so and What's problematic about that is that if you're motivated, as we were just talking about, you know, to kind of dismiss this, you can kind of seize that information and be like, well, 2% of people don't agree, um, right? And so that's mm. evidence for, and, you know, you have different models, right? Model X predicts, you know, this and model Y, and, and you're like, oh, and you can look at that and say, well, people don't know what they're talking about. And then you see another model that says nothing. Um, and I guess actually that's sort of what drove me a little bit into some research that I, I published um, a mm. while back because I was kind of, you know, looking at the stuff and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a psychologist uh, by training. So looking at climate models, I can look at the statistics, um, but I you know, can't necessarily understand what exactly is going into the model and what's, what's accurate. Um, mm. And so you would see sometimes these occasional models, a few people that would publish and say, no, everything's fine. And trying to, you know, figure out, which is accurate is tough. And one of the things that, you know, that's trying to piece together, the thing that I would always come back to was um, basically the greenhouse gas effect. And that's something, you know, you learn in elementary school, right? Uh, very, you know, basic level, um, right? CO2 and other um, greenhouse gases, they act as a, you know, as a blanket is sort of the metaphor. Um, it works quite interesting in that the sun's rays can, you know, um, they could pass through it, they warm up the earth, but then when the mm. earth kind of absorbs them and radiates them back, it actually traps the heat back in. Mm. And, you know, by you know, definition, you'd have to say that if you add more of these greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, it's going to, you know, make the blanket a little bit thicker. And, and while, you know, there's obviously different models and stuff to say how much that's going to do it. You know, anyone that's saying, Hey, no, that's, it's not happening has to kind of reconcile with, well, how do you explain, yeah. you know, that, that this isn't having any effect. Um, yeah. and I never saw that. And so, um, so, but it was this, you know, understanding the underlying mechanisms, understanding the process. And this is true for a variety of things like, right. Being able to explain it is really, and what we find is that it's really quite, um, a powerful, you know, convincer to the people who were skeptical at the time. Um, we found that, you know, there were a lot of people, like people actually had a really bad understanding of it across the political spectrum. Um, mm. We didn't find that like, you know, liberals, small, you know, small liberals um, were any better at explaining the greenhouse gas effect than conservatives. Mm. Um, but, you know, liberals like believed in global warming and climate change um, regardless, mm. whereas, you know, conservatives did not. But those conservatives who did understand it did believe in climate change. And by, you know, just by simply kind of educating, mm. we did see, you know, short term, you know, a bit of a shift in mm. moving, you know, these people. And so just understanding, you know, the piece and the idea there, as we're talking about, right, it's we want to dismiss it when we're like, you know, scared, we don't have things to do, or it's, you know, going to be mm. very problematic to fix. We want to just dismiss it. And it's once you understand why something's happening, it's a lot harder mm. to dismiss. Right? You can't just, yeah, dismiss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I mean, we discussed very similar topics with uh, two other guests uh, who were, uh, 
cog- uh, cognitive psychologist, uh, co- uh, professor of cognitive psychology, I should say, Ben Newell, and also behavior economist uh, Leonel Page, and talking about uh, the role that cognitive bias plays and uh, and all those uh, and hyperbolic discounting. But I think very interesting, as you point out, right, the fundamentals, the underlying. Uh, if you understand those fundamentals in terms of how, if you, you know, if uh, infrared radiation is trapped in the atmosphere, that increases warming, and that's, you know, it's any any person uh, with with a very simple logical reasoning can put put two and two together, and 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 it seems as like you said that uh, their belief in climate change is consistent. Uh, it becomes becomes more consistent across the political aisle, which is uh, very reassuring. Um, and at the same time, you mentioned, for example, uh, the statistic that that is often cited: how you know ninety eight percent of climate scientists agree that you know climate change is occurring. And you mentioned that if pe- you said if people are motivated, they can focus on the two percent. Now, motivated reasoning is something I'm not as familiar with, but I, I as I understand it, it focuses on uh, it focus it it. it, it touches on themes of cognitive bias of cognitive dissonance could you explain what you meant by if people are motivated they can focus on the two percent from a psychological perspective because i know i think intuitively everyone understands that some people they're just utterly convinced that their their side of the argument is true but can you go into that yeah i would love to um but if everything is you know i consider arguably the biggest problem that humans Mm. deal with psychologically and it goes by a variety of other names that people may have you know heard about like confirmation bias you know my Mm. side bias confirmation bias is sort of a one of the consequences of motivated reasoning which is the tendency to seek out and you know information and um right and apply more weight to information that confirms your existing beliefs, but there's other things that happen. People have like a disconfirmation bias as well, where they like, mm. ignore um, or counter argue against uh, information that doesn't align with their worldview. And mm, the, so understanding what's happening. So, you know, and you even um, suggested it before, right? With the process, people need to be consistent and underlying all of, um, you know, motivated reasoning is this desire to need to be consistent. That's, it seems to be a fundamental um, motivation uh, underlying, you know, humans. Um, people, and if you know what cognitive, so motivated reasoning is a product of cognitive dissonance. And what cognitive dissonance is, is it's the idea that we don't, like to have two, you know, beliefs that are inconsistent with each other at a very mm. simple level, right? We or you know, we don't like to do actions that are inconsistent with our beliefs. We don't like to have beliefs that are inconsistent with our actions. That causes, you know, this um you know, what we call a negative sense of arousal. One thing I like to, you know, I I teach you know, this to my students, I get them to sort of answer some like yes or no questions. And one of the questions I'll ask them is, you know, who thinks, you know, it's wrong to like text and drive and everyone will put their hands up and then I'll say, and who here has texted and drive? And everyone's like, puts their hand up slowly. And, you know, and I'm saying, you know, that, that feeling right there, that like, you know, that negative arousal, that, you know, that bad feeling, whatever, that's cognitive dissonance and people don't like it and we don't want to experience and then we'll do things um mm. that we don't and going back to that fear piece right it's uh what we're talking about that's part and parcel of the same thing it's oh something is bad's happening uh we should do something about it i'm not doing anything about it well now i'm inconsistent so what do you do the only way to sort of resolve that that inconsistency is 
to pretend is to say, oh, wait, no, there's nothing bad happening. And so mm. that's, you know, underlying this motivated reasoning piece is that, you know, and once you have decided, okay, yep, there's nothing, right, and that's your belief, and it kind of goes back and forth. There's, you know, oh, climate change isn't happening. I don't need to do anything. I'm not doing anything. Therefore, climate change mm. isn't happening. And so you're going to be going out and looking out for information um, that, you know, aligns with your worldview, even if it's, you know, not right, that 2%. We see this, mm. you know, and once again, like there's lots of great studies that have looked at this across, you know, everything from the legal sphere, right? People, you know, if you go in, uh, you know, if you've set up jurors who, you know, provide them and they believe ahead of time that someone's guilty and stuff, it doesn't matter, right? Like they're going to, you know, seize on the evidence that supports them and um, vice versa. You'll have, you know, um, the doctors as well, right? If they have a, you know, a hypothesis of what you have, right? That evidence is going to come forward. So we see this um, across the board in, and even in little things that don't, you know, have as much stake, right? Once we have a belief, mm. we want to act consistent with it. And so we are very motivated to do that. And one of the really interesting pieces about this is that you would think, right, that like, you know, if you are educated, um, you know, you have strong scientific literacy, right, that would be okay, yep, these are the people that should be, you know, the most, um, you know, have the strongest beliefs in uh, climate change. And, you know, on average, you do because it tends to be correlated with like, you know, liberal ideologies. But what we find is that, you know, people who are who have identities, you know, that tend to, you know, dismiss it, the better your science training, the actual the more adamant you are against climate change. And the argument mm, there is that we are able to counter argue, right? Um, the more, mm. you know, evidence and, you know, abilities you have, um, you're able to counter argue you know, any information. So you see a stat, you're like, well, you know, it could have been done, da, 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 right? You can make up these counter arguments and the, and the more, you know, education you have, the better you are able to counter argue away. And so it's this, like I said, it's this very, you know, challenging mm. problem because you would think, Hey, more education, you know, is, is the solution. And it's not, doesn't exactly work that way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I'm, oh, this is so exciting. Very cool. Um, so, I mean, just to touch on the first part in terms of motivated reasoning and cognitive dissonance, uh, when I first came across the the uh, the theory of cognitive dissonance and sort of how it plays out, um, I mean, it immediately resonated with me on uh, not only uh, on regards to bigger problems, but as you said, little problems as well. A consequence of our, I guess, evolutionary history, right, whereby as tribes we are not necessarily truth-seeking machines we are machine we are we are people that want to survive together and live together in harmony and so for example if you have someone in the tribe that is dissenting very on on a topic that everyone agrees with i imagine that it would cause considerable risk to your to your place in the tribe and so uh it makes sense to perhaps you know push away or to repress or to do all sorts of interesting things that you would not necessarily expect, and I think perhaps, I mean, this is tangential, but um, the advent of the internet and how social literacy and the expansion of knowledge, before the internet, I think people perhaps would have expected this would mean that we all become incredibly scientific liter scientifically literate. We would become people that are... Uh, you know, consistent with the science on a very consistent basis. And yet, as we've seen, that has happened in some instances for the people that are 
you know, want to focus on certain problems like climate change and have an understanding of the fundamentals. But at the same time, as we've seen like throughout COVID, for example, where, and I mean, there's many other examples, but people are not necessarily truth-seeking, as I suppose is the point I'm making. And I think a really good example of what you're talking about is a study that I really love looking at gun control in America, where you get Democrats and Republicans and you give uh, each uh, participant uh, a dossier of evidence that uh, that at first that goes against their beliefs, for example. So if uh, for Republicans, you, you give them evidence that shows, you know, America's got the number one deaths in the world. Um, you know, it's, 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 uh, uh, it's the risks are very high in America compared to other countries, et cetera, et cetera. And then for Democrats, you give them evidence saying, well, at the end of the day, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, f- assault rifles, all these other really big, scary weapons are actually not really, uh, don't really account for a large amount of deaths. It's usually handguns and all these sorts of things. So arguments that people often cite uh, for banning these guns uh, doesn't really stand up to the evidence. And the really interesting thing is, is that you would expect that the the beliefs of the people, of the Republicans and Democrats would soften based on their positions. But it is the opposite thing that happens, which is so fascinating. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I just, I love that. I absolutely love that example. Yeah, that's a great example. I was actually going to tell because there's a, a famous example and goes back, um, I think, to the 70s, late 70s. Um, if you correct me, it's, I think it's Lord Ross and Leper paper. Uh, one of the papers that kind of drove me into this area as well. And they did it with uh, capital punishment. Same thing, mm. right? People, you know, and they gave people articles, you know, that, you know, supported capital punishment. Here's why it's good, you know, and some articles. And same thing, right? You'd expect that sort of softening. Or sometimes it, they would just, you know, give, like, you know, strong evidence for, strong evidence against. And you would expect people to move and to, um, with along with the evidence. But nope. Um, you know, if you believed, mm. you know, capital punishment was good, didn't matter the evidence you, you had, you know, for, against, you know, somewhat mixed. Yeah, you polarize, right? This is the heart of attitude polarization. Um, mm-hmm. And we've known um, there's two really fascinating things you've talked about here that I think warrant, you know, just discussion. And the first, mm. you know, with cognitive dissonance, one of the, you know, and motivated reasons, one of the things that's really embedded in with this idea, you know, it's a question of like, well, why do we care so much? And you've generally hit the nail on the head there where it becomes really important in the context of our groups and our identity. And, um, and as you said, right, why are groups and identity really important is because they are you know, essential, um, especially you know, our evolutionary history for our survival. And there's arguments to be made that like, you know, a threat to the group, you know, is, um, sort of a threat to ourselves. And, and so, and because beliefs, you know, are so embedded with our groups, um, it becomes really, really important to give those things. And so beliefs that are, tend to be tied to our groups, um, any sort of, you know, evidence against that becomes really, really threatening. This is why, you know, things like, you know, religion, but even like just nationality, mm. uh, any sort of threat to those sort of ideas can become really, really threatening. And so we'll seek out and do all this motivated stuff, reasoning um, that we can do it, right? So with, you know, in those examples, right, gun control, black out punishment, these are things that obviously, you know, strong beliefs tied to identity, you would probably see, you know, the softening with things that people just didn't care really about. Yeah. Um, 
you know, okay, yeah, you know, there might be a little bit, you know, some people might push back, like, you know, people don't like being wrong, but, you know, hmm. in a sort of thing, but once you have it really tied to one sense of self. Once um, it's motivated. Yeah, right. Once it, yeah, um, it becomes, there's, there's this additional sort of piece. So I would say, yeah, mm. in, in general, we don't, we have motivated reason. We don't like to be wrong. Um, we'll seek out confirmatory evidence, but once it's tied to our sense of self um, and our sense of identity, then it's, it's pretty much game over. Um, mm. Mm. A lot of Absolutely. People, yeah. So holding these beliefs, the other thing that I think you've, you've hit on, which I think is really interesting is, you know, the question of the internet and social media. And one thing that, you know, kind of gets parroted and it's only sort of half the story is this idea of like echo chambers and right. And, you know, it's like, Oh, the internet's bad because everyone sort of sees the information um, that they, you know, that they want. And, and part of that's true, right? We see, you know, we can find information that supports our view. But the other piece is that we also see information that like we don't agree with, right. The other side and stuff and maybe attributes it. And that actually has, as your point, kind of, that opposite effect it's that that we actually you know see the other thing that polarizes us as well so we're getting hit on both sides um we're seeing mm. you know the other groups you know or whatever other you know ideas and other groups doing other things and that actually creates this you know polarization uh as well because you know mm. we're not only seeing information we agree with we're seeing information we disagree with and we have to kind of argue away and, and that pushes us towards that yeah. spiral so it's it's this it's almost this weird sort of thing where you know right the, the people will say oh everyone's in their echo chambers we just kind of got out and you know we'll you know saw the other side and learned more that would be great but it's actually in some ways seeing the other side and getting the other side that's actually the problem uh, mm. and I, I smile in a way because it's it, it i don't know what else to do it's yeah I, I, it's it's a it's a huge challenge um in terms mm. of in terms of yeah we get around this yeah and i suppose my my very knee-jerk response to what do we do about this would be something along the lines of uh, awareness precedes control which is a a a statement i really love in terms of if you become aware of how we operate as a as a as a species of the animal kingdom Mm -hmm. and not sort of uh, silo ourselves as separate from the animal world world and really understand that Mm -hmm. uh we have very mechanistic uh, uh, behaviors and responses to very uh, uh, to to things that are evolutionarily based, um, and also the fact that um, you know that yeah, I, I mean, I suppose that's the main thing. I would, my knee jerk response, but I think um, coming back to echo chambers, there's a really interesting literature which I've heard about, which I don't really know much about. Um, I want to see if you know a little bit about called social sorting. Mm-hmm. And I think it, there's a really good educational edutainment channel called Cook or something like that. And they came out with a video recently, which I recommend watching, very evidence-based uh, content, where they basically say the idea that, you know, echo chambers are very prevalent and whatnot. Uh, and the internet is uh, as you know exacerbated that is sort of like you said half the story. But what they say is you know the first counter they say to that sort of fun that belief that argument is that actually if you look at people in real life they're constantly uh, they're constantly faced with people that they disagree with. Perhaps in their social circles they'll have you know 
uh, people that they agree with. And so there's some sort of, there's some resonance, um, a consonance, I should say, but uh, people come across people they disagree with all the time. So that's the first thing they say, but they say what's really important of the, uh, an important facet of the internet is that uh, coming back to tribal evolutionary sort of psychology, uh, uh, taking that lens is that when we were in a tribe, we were all sorting for beliefs that we all agreed with and so on on a whole we may we may uh, there may be some disagreement but overall as a tribe we agree on most things and the fact that like you said we have now so many things we can see that we can disagree with we're sort of rupturing that that sorting sort of uh intuition so that it seems as though there's people that we disagree with everywhere and the people that we agree with on on a whole is not sort of evident or that's at least the argument i see uh or the, the argument I, as i understand i don't know if you've come across this literature if, if i'm summarizing it correctly what you know yeah I, th I think you've uh touched on it um so there's a few things there um to even just add on it um i've actually i actually saw that video um so and part of that is mm. oh, what good. i was talking about before um with you know we see these other people and great and it creates this you know this polarization piece um i was actually chatting with a colleague um in part on a similar sort of topic the other day and you know because i think actually one thing that they talk about in that video is you know historically right everyone would kind of share similar beliefs and you know if you and a friend kind of like disagreed about something um you could, you know, it was just like one thing, right? You knew this person, you mm. knew the trust and you could like, it wasn't maybe necessarily, you know, as threatening. It wasn't this other group. It was just, you know, someone in your group having like a different opinion and that might, you know, you might have this piece. But one thing actually I think that A, wasn't talked about in this video and B, this is, you know, I'll be honest, this is a bit of speculation, but, you know, I think, you know, the literature would support this and so would, you know, just experiences. There's something unique about, you know, texting, you know, social media, et cetera. And I see it, you know, if you're say texting with a friend even, right. And this could be just a friend and they say something you disagree with, right. They say something weird. Well, then it like sort of sits there. Right. And you like, look at it and you're like, wait, what, um, you know, is this right? Mm. Am I interpreting this right? Why would they say this, you know, et cetera. And then you have to like, think, do I want to like, you know, fight them on this, um, right? Do I just leave it, et cetera? And it, it builds and it, you elaborate on it in a way that you wouldn't do it if, you know, you were there just chatting with a friend and, like, yeah. and they said this thing, you're like, wait, what? You may be like, wait, what? Or, do you mean this? And they'd be like, no, no, no. Or they'd be like, yeah, yeah, well, and you provide that nuance. And in a conversational way, um, you know, something that's seems really, you know, dissident may not be, or you can explain it, right? Mm. But what with text? Um, and that's even with someone in your social circle, right? But mm. there's that weird break that happens that doesn't happen in conversation. And and I I wonder to what extent that sort of exaggerates. And then obviously to this point right now, take that to the extreme where now you just see someone on social media, you know, um, that's posting, you don't know anything about them or, you know, very little, and they say mm. something and, you know, there's no nuance. And you look at that and you're just like, you know, and all of a sudden now it's that and, and you, there's no <laughs> yeah. way to ask them to clarify and you don't know them. So you can't trust them. And you're just like, this is, you know, a crazy person saying crazy things and they're the other group, especially if they're in the other group. And that just sort of, you know, adds that, um, to that ridiculousness. Mm. And so that, that's a huge part of it is that, um, 
yeah, is, you know, one of the things we sort of know, this kind of goes back to your point, is historically, right, in a, in a group, we at least all kind of share most of the same, you know, values. And we would, like, you know, we would, you know, root for the same sports team. We would go to the same, you know, religious, um, you know, church, synagogue, mosque, et cetera. Um, right? We'd see these people, we'd share a lot of the same sort of values. And so any given one situation wasn't a huge um, you know, problem, and you could, like I said, you know, f- fight with it. Whereas now, it's it, we don't have that that shared understanding, and that causes mm. a bit of a an issue as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, interestingly, I mean, uh, that point about texting a friend or someone there's a disagreement versus saying something and you know being able to sort of actively dismiss it. I think, like, it comes back to your point of trust, right? And the, in and having someone that you trust disagree with you is a very, very different feeling to disagreeing with someone you don't trust because if you don't trust them, whatever, you know, I can put, I can push them to the side. There's no dissonance really, because I, I believe I'm right and they're wrong, but the dissonance occurs, uh, in some, uh, not cognitive dissonance necessarily, but a, a dissonance of opinion when you have someone like a close friend who disagrees with you politically, and then you're really forced to confront that uncomfortable mm. feeling, you know, who's right and actually questioning your values. Um, and this comes back to a really fascinating, uh, uh, I don't know if it's an active liter- uh, a literature topic, but uh, this idea of us versus them, mm-hmm. othering people, um, separating tribes, so in-group versus out-group, essentially. Um, and I read this really absolutely brilliant book called Behave by an a endocrinologist named Robert Sapolsky recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and he mentions that, you know, there's a lot of evidence to show that, you know, this othering, this in-group versus out-group is, is it's not just theoretical. There's plenty of evidence to demonstrate that this is something that's instinctive. It is something that is biologically wide in us. And so I'll just, I'll pull from a, a very quick quote he mentions is that um, he says, for starters, we detect us-them differences with stunning speed. Stick someone in a functional MRI a brain scanner that indicates activity in various brain regions under particular circumstances, flash up pictures of faces for 50 milliseconds, a 20th of a second, barely at the level of detection. And remarkably, even with such minimal exposure, the brain processes faces of thems differently than us's. And so, you know, this is something that's activating the amygdala, the sort of the primal uh, limbic system part of our brain in such with such speed uh, that you know it is uh, it makes us very very conscious of what thems are saying versus us's um, and there's this other really interesting study that I I think when was it released it was released in 2016 okay and it's called the selective uh, laziness of reasoning where essentially you separate people into two groups. Uh, and they're required to make argumentation arguments based on a specific topic, right? Um, and then in the first group, without letting them, without telling them, you give them arguments, their own arguments back to them, but without telling them that they're their own. And interestingly, about 58, 56 to fifty eight percent of the people reject their own arguments, mm. which is really really cool. I mean, and the authors basically say that people are, are far far more critical of arguments 
for other people than their own arguments because when they're presented with their own arguments back to them, they reject it more than half the time. Um, and so this is, uh, for me, uh, this just is so fascinating. And I suppose this comes back to uh, uh, this whole uh, uh, climate change, us versus them, the people that are not educated enough and they don't really understand versus us, the you know the professional class that are have the degrees and know what we're talking about. You know the the conservatives versus the liberals, the the uh, you know it, it, the us and them categories. Could, you can list so many, um, but the pervasive underlying nature of them is is such that uh, it has such a huge effect. I don't know if you have any comments there, but. So many comments because that's actually kind of my yeah. main and you know a huge main area of my research um, going forward. And I'll I'll add a few interesting sort of studies and tidbits to all of this. So to your point, right? Yeah, this us versus them, hugely hugely strong. But something that I think is fascinating is and important is you know how we think about um, you know morality. There's there's sort of this sense of you know, morality where, you know, sure, we know we have like our, our circle and we'll treat, you know, people nice within a, a circle. And then there's like, you know, the outside. And it's not so much that we, um, you know, whatever, but it's just that they're not in our circle. So we just kind of like don't care about them. And if we're going to be selfish, we'll be selfish. Um, but that's not actually the way in which we actually think. It's, it's not just that we don't care about the people outside of us. It's that in a lot of instances, um, I mean, that, that does happen, but in a lot of instances, it's actually like, it's moral to like harm the other. Mm. You know? So I, I use the example, you know, of, you can think of um, like, if there's an ant, you know, say outside or like some ants, right. Um, you're not going to go around, like just going around, like, you know, trying to kill these ants outside. Um, you know, if you did, you know, if someone saw you doing that, they'd think you're some crazy sociopath. Right. But if you had a, you know, like a poisonous spider, in, you know, in your house, right? All of a sudden now, or even just like a mosquito, you know, there's a motivation to, you know, to harm it, right? Because it is, mm. it's, it's a harmful other. Um, and so with us versus them is that, yeah, in some cases, right, you might think of, you know, people in other countries, you, you know, you feel bad, but you're not going to do anything. That's part of it. But when there's a harmful other, right, like right, this polarization, then it's actually morally justified. It's people see it as like a moral mm. good to harm people. The other example I like to use is, you know, I think we would all agree that if you put someone in a, you know, in a small kind of cage, um, and, you know, told them what to eat, where they could go, etc., like that would be terrible, right? Torture, you know, that would you know be the a terrible thing you could do. And yet we do that on mass to, you know, millions of people when we put people in jail and we feel mm. like, not, you know, it's not just right. Fine. It's morally justified. Uh, we have mm. to do it. Right. People want people to quote unquote, you know, rot in prison. And there's this, you know, that, mm. that piece. And so, um, so this us versus them becomes really hugely, you know, problematic once we, be once them becomes like a harmful them, is right because mm. I guess you can think of it like there's us, there's just like you know other whatever, and then there's them, right? We you know psychology we think of this. So there's like the outgroup, but then there's the disassociative outgroup. Mm. And um, so I have some research currently you know under review, um, but basically it shows like you know in the social media space is that um, when you know this dissociative outgroup kind of. Um, you know, says or does something, right? It becomes, you know, morally justifiable. It becomes a good to sort of mm. like attack them in whatever way uh, you can. And so, um, 
so yeah that's that's part of it i mean the thing right I, obviously i'm in the marketing space but something that i'm you know fascinated about is you know right way sort of the customers you know deal with this sort of thing we see the same sort of thing when like a lot of people will see kind of businesses as like a harmful other and when they do they feel it's morally justified to like steal from them to like lie for them to defraud them mm. all of those different things and mm. um interesting and yeah so but yeah no so i think coming back to that like uh, a, a really good example, I think, of us versus them is any sort of genocidal regime that you can look back on. So one that for me is particularly pertinent is the Rwandan genocide, where um, for those not familiar, two sort of ethnic groups, which I mean, uh, uh, even calling them two ethnic groups, I think is quite controversial because I think pretty much the differences are very, very minor. But essentially, the Rwandans were split into Hutus and Tutsis, which were basically two, uh, they were called distinct groups, but uh, I think in the 90s there was a genocide which you know ended up killing a million people so I think the Hutus killed Tutsis about I think a million people uh, in the span of three months I think like if you calculate the pace at which the deaths occurred um, and the quantity it is like one of the highest in history like it's absolutely absurd but this is all based on you know something as arbitrary as essentially uh, uh, as seeing someone as, a, as an other and then essentially your morals just uh, uh you, you you find it moral to justify it and i think flipping to the us side of things there's this cool thing called green beard traits uh, uh which it's the idea that when you see someone that relates to you in some way so the idea is you know if you have a green beard you see someone else with a green beard you have some sort of instant connection oh my god i have a green beard too so for example it's something that i've i've felt which i think is i mean in in retrospect is sort of i think is silly but in a way uh, it is uh, i guess the social uh, imp- uh, it's my it's the social sort of uh, underlying phenomenon which is my my uh, parents' ancestors from Hungary. And when I meet someone that's from Hungary or that has descendants from Hungary, oh my God, I'm from my 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 family came from Hungary. But I mean at the end of the day, if you look at the family tree, it's like everyone's from everywhere if you go far back enough. So it's in a sense it's arbitrary. But that sort of you feel connected. And the reason that Sapolsky gives in his book is that things that may seem arbitrary are ultimately linked to having some sort of shared values. And so when you have a shared values, you feel closer to people and they become a part of the tribe. That's the argument. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, to, you know, to that, right, there's, uh, I guess I'll make a, a little distinction. So, yeah, to the, this piece, there was a, there's a famous you know, psychology paradigm called the minimal groups paradigm. And what you can do there is you bring, you know, some people into whatever lab, a classroom, room, whatever, and you just randomly sign, okay, your group. A, your group B, your group one, your group two. And then, you know, you might give them, you know, one person or whatever that money and say, okay, like allocate, you know, this money to to people in this room. And people will, you know, biasly give more money um, to people in, you know, their group, even though they randomly mm. just assign them to group one and group two. Um, and so that's the idea, right? This minimal group, mm. you can do like the littlest thing um, and people will sort of, you know, side of groups and you kind of can obviously as you set that up and things become more and more foreign into the you know group and people share values um you'll see this effect stronger but that i think you know it just it's it's important to sort of distinguish kind of what we might call it in-group bias 
from say an outgroup kind of hate or outgroup bias and i think the piece there so when we're talking about you know the rwandan genocide is you know by having the different groups you, you'd probably get this in-group bias um but you need you know something that i think is important is you know we think about the genocide like oftentimes the you know you think about things like the Holocaust or the Ron Genocide, it's like, oh yeah, this group was like dehumanized. And then that, mm. that's part of it, but it, it's more than just the dehumanization. There's the reason why you have to have those, like, you know, they are, you know, they're a virus, they're, you know, yeah. they're rats and stuff. And you have to, you know, not just dehumanize them, but also make them like a harmful other. To to get that yeah. that moral justification to, you know, to commit the genocide, they have to be a you know a plague that you have to trigger the fear response exactly yeah um mm. well yeah if your response and yeah that it becomes this you know mm. moral yep. good otherwise you know it's just like oh yeah they're not in my group it's it's so it's bad that they're you know disadvantaged that's that sucks mm. but oh well what, what can i do about it um is very yeah. great that that's going to happen when you have sort of an in-group um Right, compared to like you know an outgroup, mm. but when that outgroup becomes you know strongly dissociative, and you sort of associate them with you know yeah, like you said, a, you know a, a threat mm. to your way of life, etc. Now all of a sudden, um, that becomes you know uh, yeah, absolutely. Now, so in the context of us versus them, in the context of risk perception, fear, uh, cognitive dissonance, I think we we've touched on a lot of really interesting uh, concepts uh and i think tying back to climate change again um all these are relevant and at the same time uh people may feel a bit i think disenchanted or not maybe not disenchanted but perhaps uh, or they'll be wondering at the very least you know how with all these you know mechanisms or ideas in mind does this put us in a, 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 a good or a bad position in terms of combating climate change. Um, I know that you mentioned before one of the things that in terms of why we're finally acting is that um, we can see all of this happening in front of us in terms of climate change unfolding. We're seeing droughts, we're seeing you know extreme heat, water distress, all sorts of things. Uh, and you know your article suggests that there's like a shift occurring because of this, there's a people are perceiving climate uh, as a uh, if we don't act, it's to wait. Uh, it's going to be far more costly to not act than to act, right? So, what are the other ways that we can sort of shift our perception and to sort of enhance uh, people to be motivated in favor of acting climate change more? Yeah. So, even architect to the sorry come back to even this group's piece one of the other problems associated with this right is a question of collective action Hmm. and it's one of those challenging problems because you know we're in australia but obviously there's a big world and even if everyone in australia did everything they could every business did everything they could to curb this it wouldn't be you know it wouldn't do much um, if nobody else did. And so the question, you know, and so we know that people really don't like to, especially they're, they're really averse to being kind of like the sucker, right? Mm-hmm. Is we're not, you know, as motivated um, to be, you know, self-interested. We just really don't want to be 
you know, the sucker, like our way of thinking, we think of gains is more in, in align with how other people are doing, right? If, mm. yeah, this sort of prisoner's dilemma 101, but, you know, if people feel like if, if I get three and you get four, that's almost worse than if we both get two, even though yeah. three is obviously better than two. Um, it's sort of this, you know, we, we see, you know, social comparatively. So that's part of the problem. You know, the, the group, the, a lot of the stuff we are talking about before sort of is important in the context of, especially in the past, you know, whether or not people believe and stuff. But I think this collective action piece is, is huge and something, you know, I don't know if this is like a solution, but, you know, I obviously am a consumer psychologist, so I look at it um, from that lens. But I think there's a huge, it is a collective action problem and we need people, you know, not just governments, but, you know, businesses and stuff sort of pull together. And something that I find disheartening and I don't, um, is sometimes there are kind of win-win solutions. So I was just thinking, talking to a colleague a little while ago and we are talking about, um, um, like detergent, like a concentrated detergent. And that in a way is a huge win-win, right? It's, um, you know, less packaging, you know, less transport costs, which is good for both businesses and consumers, um, obviously better for the environment in all those regards. And yet, you know, it, at the start of the day, it was actually more expensive than the regular one. And it's like, but, but why, right? It's, it's cheaper to produce, cheaper to transport, all of these things. And, Arguably, it's because, you know, there are people who care about the environment. And so now there's like a price premium to care about the environment. Sometimes that makes sense. It's just, you know, it costs more to, to do the right thing. But in this case, it's not. And yet there still is this, this price premium. And we need to start really gearing towards, you know, these these win-win solutions that exist. Um, I mean, the same thing happens with like, you know, solar panel. Like one of the nice things about, you know, this movement is that, yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. You can now, you know, in you know, invest in solar panels and then, you know, five or so years, all right, you're, you're ahead. And that's like a win-win. And if you can like motivate, you know, governments to sort of subsidize that or even like take things. Anyway, there are these advantages that, that are there. And, and those are the things that I think we really need to focus on is get people, everyone aligned and be like, okay, let's find these win-win solutions where we can, you know, invest, you know, in the short-term costs aren't that crazy or even, you know, better. And then the long-term, um, gains are huge but it has to be not just you know at the individual level not even at the country level it has to be at a global level hmm. and do, do you f so uh, uh, i definitely agree um and at the same time i'm also wondering if uh and may maybe this will become left of field but thing uh, things like shame have a role to play so for some context um <laughs> coming back to that book i read it's such a good book um behave um the author talks about the uh, testosterone as the uh, uh, uh testosterone the hormone and sort of its role in in or oh, pardon me it talks about its role in um regulating so social behavior and he talks about how uh testosterone is often seen as a hormone that uh, increases aggression but what it actually does is that it increases one's appetite for status and as a consequence of status seeking one is more likely to be aggressive so for example you give there's five five apes you give ape number three in the hierarchy testosterone it does not attack monkey one and two the two monkeys above it 
but it does take out more anger on monkeys four and five. And so the rationale being is that at this level, it is all about social status and maintaining that status. Now, he argues that, or sorry, my sort of extrapolation of this is that in the context of climate change and sort of collective action, a big problem is that uh, there is status at the moment and and working for or furthering causes related to fossil fuel companies. So, for example, a lot of fossil fuel companies are the highest of, of earning the highest profits they've ever recorded in history at this point, something like that, roughly. And working for companies and making a lot of money is a very, very uh, societal speaking. As a consequence, is a People want to do it. People want to be making a lot of money and they want to be making it the biggest companies in the world, you know, on, in general, not everyone, but in general, um, I would argue. Now, I think th- that it would be interesting if there was some sort of regulating mechanism where we all socially agree, some sort of contract, where if you work for these companies and you're furthering the production of fossil fuels in some way or another, uh, you ought to be shamed for it. And this is very, very controversial, or maybe not very controversial. I guess it depends where you stand. But for me, I think shame plays a very big role in mitigating behaviors around the world and perhaps not for very much good. But I think there is a case to be made, certainly, in the context of climate change, that it is something that ought to be socially shamed. Now, look, maybe that's just me being being a bit cynical and seeing us versus them and sort of falling to the very trap that we've been discussing. But I'm I'm also cognizant that there's, as RPCC say, there's a rapidly closing and dwindling window of action for which we need to act. And so with that in mind, do you think shame has a role to play on a psychological level, triggering the fear and sort of pushing people to be more conscious? Or am I just being a bit... Uh, Am I losing the plot here? What do you think? So lots of interesting things there, uh, but I will push back on, one, on a couple of things. But the first thing, you know, I think the status piece is is interesting, um, and, so, and especially because they're actually, you know, in some ways, the you know being environmental, there is a status there, and, and mm. you know, Tesla's you know genius in in a way, right, was to make you know, electric cars, you know, a status symbol, right? Mm. You know, people were buying it. Oh, yeah, it's good for the environment. And sure, that was great. But, you know, Tesla did what, you know, became Tesla mm. because they're like, no, our cars are going to be, you know, they're going to be cool. They're going to be, you know, luxury cars. Um, that's you know, going to be the case. And um, so so there is a place, you know, so there's a status piece. The piece, the thing about shame is I would agree with you if – you know, if we, if everyone agreed, right. The fact that there is this polarization mm. makes that problem. Difficult. So like, you know, as you brought up the thing before, whereas, you know, if a close friend kind of, you know, says, mm. you know, shames you or whatever, like says, Oh, you did something wrong. Now you're going to like, okay, great. Sort of that you get that dissonance in a way, but that you have to resolve sort of two things, right. Either you have to, you know, not be friends with this person or you have to mm. sort of take a look at yourself and change your behavior but mm. when you're when you know if you were to shame someone who doesn't you know it's not in your group it doesn't you know share things like oh what are you doing mm. well that's going to do what we we're just talking about before people are going mm. to be motivated away from that threat and and actually probably double down um on yeah their piece so mm. um 
you know, that being said, right. Like I actually have a, a friend. Um, she, uh, you know, she took a job kind of like with, and you know, she felt her own sort of, you know, bit of mm. shame, right. Uh, in that sort of way. So, so it is there and, you know, hopefully you know, it can motivate it, but for other people to shame, you know, so people will feel that self shame in some ways, but mm. to kind of come out and you know, go on that attack, like to say that my little bit of you know, research shows like it is, it is not, it has the exact backfiring effect that we yeah. see with people. Um, you know, I, right. One of the examples I like to use is, you know, well, there's like, um, so Colin Kaepernick, uh, Nike, um, uh, yeah. football player, right. And, you know, everyone like when he, you know, did the thing, you had all these people be like, boo, you know, Colin Kaepernick and right. Like yeah, perhaps it's worth stuff. explaining what what he did. Oh, yeah. I know so, we actually talked yeah. about it on a podcast a, perhaps a year ago, but I think yeah. for I mean, any listeners, I'm not familiar. There are a number of examples. So he was a uh, football uh, NFL quarterback, um, and he's started off um, by taking a knee to protest kind of police brutality against black people. Sort of before Black Lives Matter was a thing, he was sort of one of the you know the faces of that sort of movement and you know over time and then it became, he became very controversial um he ended up being i guess kicked off that team and then later nike ran an ad and he was you know the main kind of person in that ad and mm-hmm. you know the conservative right who was kind of against that um you know his sort of stand like took you know to social media took to the streets you know they like yelled at nike etc and um and you know like burnt some stuff and, and created this whole sort of piece about how bad nike is and you know i had some research and I, I um and i was like no like this is actually going to be good for nike i could see exactly why they did this and sure enough you know um mm. like they they were they posted like their highest like you know sales and profits you know the, in the weeks after that right because you had people on the other side being like well you know screw you we're gonna like defend nike in this regard and you see this mm. in, in a variety of different contexts so that's what i would be worried about in this current yeah. climate um about the shame <laughs> piece that's not to say that it's um that you're, these are there but because we uh, yeah mm. it would work if we were all in a very closed tight so yeah. shame would be a very powerful force to get people to move yeah. um but when you have groups it, it it that's where you get a bit of a, an issue yeah yeah and um as a uh as a vegetarian i've sort of see this same trend with people that are vegans that are uh very much uh a very very passionate let's say to use a uh, to use conservative language about the cause and people that go out and protest show, showcasing videos of anim, animal farming and whatnot which you know in in a, on an ethical basis you could uh, i think you can have a very good argument to make about veganism and one which i'm actually quite favorable in um, but you can see people's responses to such strong sort of shame like uh, uh actions that people uh start othering them and actually it's very easy to not really get on board they just say well they're just a bit crazy you know they're the extremists or you know what other language that that people may use um but yeah no i definitely agree with you thank you for pulling me off from the brink (laughs) um the but the the other thing though that i think is really important here and this is something that you know i've started looking into and i have is something that I think is fascinating is we are more motivated, you know, right. People, there's this huge push. Oh, like, you know, to do good. 
and uh, you know, and we're motivated to do good. But what we're really motivated to do is to not do bad. And right, um, those words are obviously ambiguous, but um, but inherent in this is you know, if we can all agree that you know, the the biggest issue with shame is sort of if you do it in the wrong way, it causes that. But at the heart of what your argument is, why I. I see where you're going from, come from, and where I would agree with you is that it, in the event that we all kind of agree with something, right, and we agree that it's not just a good, right, it's not just good to do X, um, you know, pick your mm. thing, right, um, but it's actually you know bad to not do it. Well, now all of a sudden, right, yeah, that's where that shape becomes. Now all of a sudden, that motivation mm. to do it becomes really, really important, mm. um, you know. A simple example, right? Like, oh, it's, you know, oh, it's good to turn off your light. Oh, it's good to recycle, right? Sure, right? Yeah, people will do mm. it, but if you don't, it's not. But if it's like, oh man, you didn't recycle. Oh man, you didn't turn off your light, and you like <laughs> have to walk, you know, back, you know, if you're in an office or whatever, and everyone's like looking at you, you're like, whoa, okay, mm. I gotta make sure I'm, I'm always turning off my light. I mean, that's a very, you know, but an example. But with companies, it's like, oh, your company is producing, you know, X. It's like, it, right? It's not just good. Like, oh, the company is, you know, doing things. It's, you know. Um, it's moving towards a more sustainable thing. Great. What if we can all agree that like, you know, not just us, but the company can also agree. Wait, it's, you know, it's bad. We, we do have some of these things, right. Where there are certain things that companies just can't do. They can't just, you know, pollute. They can't just dump their waste in, you know, public waters that people, you know, swim in. They can't just take, you know, waste mm. and throw it on the like park of garbage. You can't just litter wherever you want. We have certain things that, you know, whereas it's okay to like put stuff in the garbage and it goes to a landfill, whatever. We, it's not okay to just chuck it on the ground. Hmm. Um, and so the question is, well, well, why and why are those motivations so different? It's because it's you know we consider you know littering as wrong, but hmm. like you know, but throwing something you know in the garbage um, when it could have gone to you know and been recyclable <laughs> is yeah. you know is fine. It's bad. It's good to recycle. It's not like bad you're not a bad person for not yeah. recycling yeah and those so that's the thing that that's a huge sort of piece trying to get to that point is a huge challenge how norms shift and evolve is complicated and not well understood um but yeah but I think mm. to, to your point like so your intuitions are you know i think are aligned with that yeah yeah well i think um coming back to the tesla example um i just actually tesla just released an ad just this morning mm -hmm. which is probably one of the best ads i've ever seen so it's for their new cyber truck mm -hmm. and they say our cyber truck is faster than a porsche 911 whilst it is towing a porsche 911 and it's just a video of a cyber truck driving alongside a porsche 911 and the cyber truck has a has got a, a porsche 911 on the back and it's quicker than it in going from like zero to 100 or something but i think as you point out uh, the status of having that is just so strong that uh, even for people that are perhaps conservative on a on a on a uh in American conservatives who may be less favorable to the idea of climate change, they will definitely get on board with the idea of having a Tesla because, you know, having a Tesla is bad badass. That's that's a, that's that's pretty. Having a Cybertruck, whoa. So, uh, so I think coming back to that, perhaps the, the shame may have a place if if 
we all agree, but perhaps in the interim for a globalized society where there's not that much agreement, perhaps the next best thing is to give out status for things that do that do matter on the environmental front. So I don't know. I, so for an example here in Australia, I don't know if it, maybe it's uh, multinational, but there's the uh, the certified. Uh, I forget the name. It's like a it's a bo- a company that certifies other companies that they follow good ethical practices. I forget the name of the certification, but uh, it's essentially a status symbol for consumers where they can look at brands that they like, and if they are aligned with this certification, they are di- the, these companies are said to follow much more stringent uh, ethical practices than is legislated, right? Um, and I think this is a good example of incentivizing companies to seek status in the areas that are promoting more environmentally friendly uh, uh, actions or being more climate focused or whatnot. What do, you, what do you think on that front? A few different thoughts there. So it, it really depends on, you know, it's on the implementation. There are ways mm-hmm. in which, you know, I could see this you know, it, it being effective, but it, it trying to create a status you know, brand of any sort is not always, you know, it's not super easy. Um, mm. I mean, there are ways you, know, you could maybe, it would be a nice thing, right? For this would be a good place. Actually, this is where, you know, celebrities like to put their, um, you know, you know, stamp on certain things, but like sometimes it can be problematic, but one thing that they can confer is status. And so mm. this would be a place where that would be, pretty helpful um and but okay so presumably that you know if and then there's questions of trust like how good are these right i think people have been you know burnt enough by you know greenwashing um you know just you know different sorts of claims that you know people can make um so that becomes a bit of a a problem but assuming you know it's it's well trusted people actually like you know it, it does confer status and we can all kind of agree i mean the other piece is whether or not it actually you know people care and this is a high status sort of mm. piece so that that would be my pushback um mm. not that it's not a good idea not that it wouldn't be effective the, yeah no the, most certainly the, the other thing though that i i don't necessarily worry about but i think it's kind of goes back to the place is is if this then becomes you know if businesses then see this as like a value add right and then as a result it becomes oh like it's more expensive you know, to get the sustainable one, it's actually more expensive now because even though, right, like it's not more expensive to produce and stuff, but it's because there's a growing group of consumers that are willing to pay more for mm. this, you know, this certified sustainable um, product. And that, to me, I think is where, you know, um, there has to be some sort of shift uh, in a lot mm. of ways because, you know, I mean, you're a vegetarian. It's something that I, I'm, you know, I, I did some work on was on lab-grown meat, cultured meat, clean meat, uh, you will, because mm. um, like, like you, I, you know, I share um, those things, and I and I really hope that you know, clean meat will be a game changer. And one of the things that you know we found in research is, you know, there's a, there's a group of people who are just kind of like, no, that's weird, that's disgusting. But for a lot of people, they're like, yeah, I would, I would eat it, assuming you know it was like the same price or cheaper right Mm. um a lot of people will make sort of those um you know if it's not something that people really really care about then you know price becomes a huge um 
issue, um, especially yeah. in this, you know, with inflation, you know, we're not living in a time where a lot of people really have a lot, a lot of means. So it becomes, you know, a challenge and people have to scrape, you know, buy. And so if it's like, oh, mm. I can spend, you know, it'll cost me $5 more for this, you know, product, $5 more for this product, whatever, mm. it's more sustainable, or I could, you know, get the cheaper ones, right? Mm. That's, that's a, that's a calculus that people make and people will often default to the cheaper option if it's, if like the environment is not like the thing that they are caring about at that mm. moment. Um, for sure. That, that, that becomes, so that would be mm. my push. Like, I think what you're saying, you know, makes sense and we want to, you know, move towards mm. that, but it also has to be done in a way. One of the things, you know, that we're looking at now is, yeah, is what sort of, um, we're looking at, you know, there's, there's this attempt to kind of electrify, you know, the whole grid here in Victoria mm. and, um, and the question is, you know, what's the best way to go about it? How do we incentivize those kinds of things? And so that's what we're we're looking at now. But there, but once again, these would be like those those win wins mm. in a way. Um, I mean, this is more from the government end. But is there a way to sort of get, you know, businesses on board? Can we, you know, provide, you know, grants and incentives and subsidies to businesses to be like, hey, yeah, produce this. Mm. Um, if it, you know, if you, know, you can't charge more, whatever. Anyway, get the idea. Um, but yeah. make it so that. Consumers are motivated to purchase the, this more sustainable choice, right? Like, mm. don't don't make it difficult for them. Make it easier for them. Mm, mm. Yeah, no, that's it's all very fascinating, and uh, I uh, I wish you well on that research because it's a very very important space. And uh, another some good news is that our state, New South Wales, Victoria, and the second biggest state, I think, or perhaps the first, depends if you're a Victorian, I suppose. Um, is that uh, New South Wales just passed this morning legislated targets to reduce emissions by 70% by 2035. Yeah. So net zero by 2050. So that's, you know, uh, what, 30, 25% above the federal target. So I think we're, we're on, we're on track. So I'm feeling very good about that, but um, coming back to a final point, which I think, uh, and I asked Ben Newell this and he was, uh, he thought it was quite funny. Um, if I gave you the tools of, uh, not the tools, if I gave you a special wand where you suddenly became uh, in charge of a lot of uh, uh, political power in a way where you could, uh, you could, uh, if you said something, it would go, you know, if we'll, we'll uh, enforce everyone to undertake mandatory marketing training metrics. But, um, you know, if I gave you some sort of, uh, some sort of power to give everyone some sort of marketing insight, some sort of uh, behavioral insight. What would that one thing be if you could uh, try and promote uh, that sort of sort of understanding? I think a big one goes back. I mentioned before. I think you know, motivated reasoning, confirmation bias is this huge problem, and one of the big, you know, not just understanding it, but embedded in that is the idea that you know, we hold our beliefs really really central to our sense of self and so when those beliefs come into um you know under attack it feels like our sense of self is being attacked and i think something that would be really helpful is to be able to you know dis to get people to kind of break kind of that that like you know it's Better than having these these beliefs, you know, these really tight beliefs, it's fine. Have ideas, but you know, be willing to change and, and look because they're just these, you know, less core to ourselves ideas as opposed to beliefs. Right, will be more 
susceptible to you know be able to change and follow the evidence accordingly i think that mm. would be you know it depends on how powerful my wand is um that would be one of them uh in terms of that i think that that's you know and as part of this podcast i think that that's something that at least we can all try to do we can all mm. try to be like okay you know how do i know right having a little bit of intellectual humility uh across the board right how do i know that i'm right about x or y right why do i believe mm. what i believe how strong do i believe it you know well how, what would be evidence that could change my mind um mm. i think is something that would really you know, help mm. yeah and i think uh I think that's a very fair point and one that I think we should all endeavor to take, even on things that we strongly identify with. So, you know, as an environmental podcaster, you know, the, the keeping in mind that it could be possible that I could have evidence that changes my mind if some it appeared in the new journal of, you know, journal of anti-climate science and there was uh, evidence that this is all not happening. Well, I, I have to contend with the idea that that could be possible. And I think everyone that has some sort of, attachment to the ideas and to their identity should be quite cautious and hold it with a hold it with a, not a hundred percent certainty but you know with the possibility that you could be wrong and hopefully that makes everyone slightly more cautious evidence-based and uh seeking truth i suppose at the end of the day um as a last question jeff i wanted to ask you if you had a utopia uh, in as few words as many, what would that utopia look like? I had a utopia. Um, there's lots of you know, little things, but I think one thing that we we know um, that really is important for human well-being is social connection. And we haven't talked too much about this, although we talked a little bit about groups importance there. But social connection is one of those things that, you know, right happiness tends, tends to be extremely, you know, correlated with the strength of our social relationships. And, you know, through a variety of different things, social media being, you know, one of them, we have seen, you know, greater and greater disconnects. Um, both with even within our close friends but then also obviously the polarization with other people um in our place and there i would say you know they're in a variety of different ways yeah like utopia just you know fostering that greater social connection being able to sort of you know look to you're talking about that those green beard traits right having those green beard traits with everyone you know really you know being open and, you know, for lack of a better word, nice, you know, to, to people and just trying to foster those, those social connections and those relationships and, um, yeah, and just, you know, without being, you know, too kumbaya, you know, just you know, everybody <laughs> getting along, right? We're, uh, there's no rules. You can be, you can be yeah, too kumbaya. I mean, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, like, right? It's like, oh, world peace. But like, really, that's what I'm kind of talking about here, right? If we think about, you know, at the extremes of the lack of social connection, you know, you have people, you know, fighting and killing each other, as we talked about before, because they just, you know, they don't share their worldviews. They don't share their beliefs. They other them, etc. And, um, and so, you know, at a very, you know, at a high level, right? Even just a few steps down that ladder, right, we can get, you know, a lack of that kind of war. But then, 
uh, all the way down, right? Those closer connections, you know, mm. just with people, you know, around you, um, even people online, that would be, you know, I guess my, my utopia. Mm. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. Um, thank you very much, Professor uh, Jeff Rutman. Thank you for joining me. Ab, if, there, if people want to find your research or want to find you or anything that you're promoting, where can they find it? So um, probably the best place to buy my research, um, most of my stuff ends up getting published on Google Scholar. Um, we're working on developing our Better Consumption Lab website, so that'll be up, but it's not up just yet um so yeah for now but feel free i mean my email uh jeff.rodman at deacon.edu.au if you have any questions uh i love happy to chat um connect with me on linkedin but yeah um great well thank you again stay with me in the uh, virtual green room if i can call it that um and uh and i uh, appreciate you coming on thank you thank you